0: want to spend some time throughout the summer just getting to know one another. Um, The church is growing and new people are coming along. Um, New people, particularly over the last seven or eight months since we came out of COVID, have joined the church and it's been a great blessing to welcome them. And we had a number of people do believe in and belong in at the start of January. Uh, And so we want to spend some time just really building family. As we go into September later on this year, we do feel a sense of momentum. We will be getting about the work. But in this te- kind of more relaxed season of the summer, we wanted to use it to really bring, build strong foundations amongst the family. And because we had two services, I don't know about you, but many people on the first Sunday that were here were like, who, who are all these new people? And while, while there were a number of new people, the reality is many of these people had been coming as well. Just because we had two services, we hadn't got a chance to see each other uh, and get to know one another. And so we thought it would be great just um, each week to take... Uh, five minutes or so and interview somebody from the church family so you can get to know them a little bit more and um, and become aware we can't obviously interview everyone because um, that would take a long time Um, but we do hope it opens up a spirit and atmosphere of welcome and hospitality and getting to know one another and so Debbie has put a wee list of people together that we're going to be interviewing each week just taking five minutes before the speaker comes is that okay um because uh, it's great to be back to one service, isn't it? It means don't have to preach twice, which is amazing, all right? <laughs> I'm tired listening to myself after the first one, never mind the second one, all right? So um, so this week, believe it or not, we're going to be interviewing my wife. Isn't that wonderful? So why don't you give Rachel a round of applause? <clears throat> I'm going to gorilla, her. Dad, I've got her up here, yeah. It is
1: frightening what you agree to when hmm. you're lying in a
0: awesome sunbed in 30 degree heat. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, so um, what we'd love to do on these is get to know each other a little bit, but also a bit about how people experience uh, their life and faith in their everyday life. So I know most of you know Rachel or know that uh, uh, that we're married, um, uh, but maybe a lot of you don't know what Rachel does every day um, and um, how uh, yeah, she lives her life that way. So tell us, Rachel. Please inform me and everybody <laughs> else uh, what, what you do, what you get up to the rest of the week when you're not looking after me.
1: So when we're at home, obviously, we're busy with three kids, um, all at school age. Um, so most of my time that I'm at home is spent looking after them. Um, a lot of the time is also looking after Alan, finding his wallet, finding his <laughs> keys, um, and <laughs> just trying to basically manage him as he's running out the door to lots of different things. Um but really day to day I am busy also. So um I am out most of the time, most of the time I've spent in Lisburn. I am a dentist there. Um, and in 2016 I actually bought a dental practice and um, which we bought together. Um, and so a lot of my time during the week is spent there working there clinically, and um, running the practice um, and really trying to grow it. So has grown from being really three dentists to now we have seven dentists um, and just under 20 employees. So um, most of my time is actually spent down there, which a lot of people probably don't really know.
0: There you go. A dentist, if anybody's struggling, yeah? <coughs> <coughs> It'll cost you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so tell us a little bit about then. um why you know how your faith, how you know your love for Jesus is expressed real in and through your business?
1: Well, I actually really love my job, which is actually try and keep that quite low profile because it's really maybe quite, quite sad, but I feel very passionate about my job. Feel very passionate about business, and um, and actually a few years ago, uh, our our oldest daughter Annie came up with a tagline. Um, she was like, "Mummy, you really should um, put underneath your, your dental practice, your smile matters. And I guess that's just something that I um, really took to heart and was like, actually, that is so true. So I think in terms of faith, um, I was thinking about this earlier, it is really threefold, and that's what I try and live bit by. Um, first of all, when it comes to my patients, um, I think it is unbelievable what people do tell you whenever they come in and um, they're very anxious they're very vulnerable out of control and um, and that's only just coming to see me <laughs> unfortunately and <laughs> um, so it is unbelievable what you do hear what people tell you and um, and it is uh, just a real gift to be able to talk to people and hear their situations and um, it's also a real pleasure and a lot of my time is spent doing cosmetic dentistry and changing people's smile and we've had a lot of people in that have said um, do you know what this has been life-changing for me this has actually given me a confidence that I just didn't have before so I I get a real you know pleasure out of seeing people transformed in their confidence being able to to walk out the door and actually feel confident about who they are so um you know, first of all, I would say, you know, it just being able to work out my faith in, in a very practical way with my patients. I think, secondly, having staff, and um, I think um, just being able to lead them in a way that can be a good example. I would say that a lot of my staff would say I'm very focused in work. I don't have a lot of time. I work very hard clinically, and I don't have a lot of time to have sit-downs, deep and, meaningful, deep and meaningfuls, but what I always um, try and try and lead by is, I, always, I think, with the values are authenticity, kindness, and generosity, and I think, do you know, if you, can, if you can lead that way, then that will speak for itself, and I, and I, I do feel we have a great team, um, and I, I'm really proud of them and, and how they work together. Um, and thirdly, just, um, you know, the generosity thing is, is, a, is a massive thing in terms of the way we want to out- work our life. So we do get a buzz at the end of the financial year when we can look at it and think, do you know, I, 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 love, I love the business side, I love making money, I love being able to give money away, and so um, that is a real um, exciting time for us when we can sit down and go, look, who are we gonna bless this year? You know, we've got, um, you've got this much, you know, we wanna give a, a, a good percentage away, um, and so um, that is a, a great uh, gift to be able to do that too.
0: And ma'am? pretty amazing, isn't you? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's really tough, particularly when you're a woman um, leading a business in uh, pretty much a man's world, kind of pressing forward and um, just um, doing your work and working hard and providing for people and providing for people of God and being able to bless. And so that's been really, really amazing to watch for me um, as a husband and, and cheer on. Um, I'm going to ask Rachel to pray for our church here um, this morning. Um, I'm not going to get everybody necessarily who's interviewed to pray, but I guess one of the things that I found, uh, which is good to know, is we're very much a team, you know. Marriage is one of those beautiful things where we become one. And even though um, we and Rachel live our lives quite differently day to day, you know, I'm not who I am without her. Uh, marriage is the thing that completes us we become one It's mysterious it's beautiful it's it's godly it's it's his idea and so um i can't lead the way i lead without rachel's help and without her completedness of me if that makes sense even though she's not necessarily always at the front and uh, this church family we Prayed a lot together as a family. We came to Portadown for years, well, for the year beforehand, and we prayed as a family. And then we had Finn, and he was born four weeks before the church began. And we always say, it's a wonderful prophetic picture to plant the church, but a terrible idea, (laughs) right? Because um, as you can imagine, for those of you who have been blessed with babies, how tricky it can be and how full on it is with the newborn. And, uh, And so... The start of the church, really, for Rachel uh, was not so much being able to get to know all of you guys, but walking up and down High Street Mile with a pram, trying to get a baby to sleep, and so many of you will know the cost and the sacrifice that comes to that, but I'm only saying that that says she also really carries God's heart for what we're trying to do here, and it's just a massive support to me and as a family, and I think she's, I think she's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, don't you? So... Um, so before Keith comes, would you would you pray for us, Richard? We pray for the church as we kind of find ourselves in this in this space right now and as we kind of crack on as a church family into all that God has for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lord, we just want to um, come before you this morning. God, we just thank you for your kindness to us. God, we thank you for this building. God, we thank you for the feeling of unity, yes, God. And we thank you for the feeling of peace. And God, we just really want to... Um, come before you and pray for more. Yes. Cool. Uh, we just know you have more for us. Mm. And God, we thank you for the way you've led us this this far. Yeah. We just really pray, God, that you will continue to um, speak to us, God, to use your spirit, to use us day to day for those in the public square, God, and for those um, at home um, and for all, all our different vocations, God. So we just really um, yeah, continue to pray for more of you. And yeah, we just w- want to really pray for Keith this morning. We pray for him as he comes and shares with us. Um, and may each one of us be touched this morning.
0: Amen. 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 So let's give Rachel a round of applause and Keith a round of applause <laughs> as, he, as he comes. <coughs> Keith, I'll just hand over to you. Rachel's prayed for you. And uh, kick us off on our new series, please. Thank you. Um,
2: yeah, it's, it's great to be here. and get the opportunity to kick off this uh, new series. Um, I, uh, I didn't know it was going to be called Summer Psalms, but I kind of really thought it had a real ring. You know, we're not going to talk about any Psalms. We're going to talk about Marks and Spencer's Summer Psalms. So, I mean, I, I d- and so as I was thinking about this, I was kind of really considering what Psalm. Like, I'd really love to have done Psalm 119 uh, or 176 verse but I thought that might be a bit ambitious. But I want to... Uh, Follow on from some of the themes that Chris talked about last Sunday. I'm sure you remember he posed the question, why did Jesus come? And uh, so I want you to raise your hands. Uh, I don't know, Maybe you're all a bit traumatized from last week. Um, I, maybe this week you've been thinking about that word that he gave us, metamorphosis, that transformation that Jesus came to bring us. And you've seen yourselves as butterflies or pupae or whatever. whatever he was talking about. I'm a bit traumatized because I didn't get the medical question right. Uh, but you can relax today. I'm not going to ask you to do a quiz. Uh, instead, I'm going to ask you to engage in something uh, different. I'm going to ask you to engage in a thought experiment. I'm going to ask you to use your imaginations and, and enter the world of the poet. So if you feel comfortable, I want you to close your eyes uh, as you listen to this psalm this morning. The psalm I've chosen uh, to talk about is Psalm 24. follows on from Psalm 23. Uh, And and as you listen, I want you to use your inner eyes, your imagination, um, and as you listen to this, I want you to think of what, what images or stories or memories come into mind, and maybe even what feelings do these images evoke. So Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him the Lord Almighty, He is the King of Glory. I want you just to kind of hold uh, that picture or whatever else that emotion or whatever you you felt through this today, as we talk through this. Okay. I'm sure it's not something you think about every day, nor day, but about 300 years ago, something very significant happened that reordered the very way we think. There was a period in history that became known as the Enlightenment. Bet you didn't think you were going to get a history lesson today. Uh, so, the Enlightenment was this, what they call the Age of Reasons, defined as that uh, period of scientific, political, and philosophical discourses, Oh, the internet says it, and make this up myself, uh, that characterized European thought from the late 17th century. Um, and this was a period of huge change in thought and reason and was decisive in the making of modernity. I'm only saying that to you because um, we don't realize that before that, how we thought was actually quite different. So for the so-called modern mind, reason has trumped imagination, and this has led to a downgrading of the power of imagination as a way of understanding our world and our lives. This is unfortunate for us, really, because as followers of God (coughs) um, and our faith, our faith is the very substance of our life is primarily an act of imagination. Faith is the belief that there is an unseen reality, a God who ultimately orchestrates everything seen and unseen. God can't be proven by reason, or measured in a scientific way, but can be experienced, and we bear witness to that in our lives. Faith is the intersection of revelation and imagination worked out in our lives. And if you want to understand this, there's a whole chapter that explains how this works. Um, and if I ask you, I'm not going to ask you, but if you ask, Hebrews 11 explains this. So Hebrews 11 starts, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And that whole chapter explains how uh, all those prophets and uh, fathers of the, of the church, that's, that's the world that they engaged in. We use our imaginations every day, and I would argue that imagination is more powerful than our reason. It is our imaginations that are the primary drivers for our lives. It's our imaginations that create our desires, our ambitions, our sense of security, our loves and our fears. So here's another thought experiment. Imagine you've decided to build a house. What comes into your mind first? Do you start by calculating the size of the house? the shape of the roof, the number of rooms, the windows, do you calculate the bricks and the number of bags of cement and the number of trusses, the wooden glass required for the windows? Reason would dictate that to build a house, that is all that needs to happen. We need a plan and materials and that's it. But I'm gonna suggest that that's not what you thought of when you thought about building a house. If you're a woman, I suggest, because I don't really know how women think, you might see a kitchen with shiny worktops Granted, of course, courtesy of Ken, I do not here today. You might see a tidy playroom and children quietly watching cartoons. You see Sunday dinners with friends or family all around your beautiful dining room table. Am I right? If you're a man, you might see something quite different. Perhaps you saw your man cave, your shed, your garage, your TV room, strangely minus the children your barbecue area, where everyone knows the real cooking's done, your hot tub, a place for your motorbike, your dream car, or shiny carbon bike in my case. Each of us have our own idea of what a house is. But the point is, we don't see the bricks and wood and glass. You see your life lived out, usually in an idealised way. We imagine how the house will make us feel, how it will feed our souls, how it will be a safe place for, for those we love. A place where we can truly be ourselves you see this is what the psalms actually do in us they evoke memory and imagination they invite us to partake in the reality that god has created us and everything we see and that he desires that we understand our identity and purpose in the psalms we struggle with our brokenness and the brokenness of the world we experience love and hope we can with the psalmist express despair and terror on our deepest fears. I only truly really understood all this felt relatively recently. I've always struggled with Psalms, with the lack of logic, uh, the different voices, the lack of clarity or resolution. Um, the breakthrough came when I realized that the Psalms are songs and poems. I recently read Eugene Peterson's uh, biography. Most of you know he, he wrote the message. Uh, and one of the stories he tells early on is this discovery that the Psalms were poems, and how that changed his entire reading of scripture. In his case, that happened when he was a teenager. In my case, it took to his 40s or 50s. Then a few years ago, I I spent a year going through the Psalms using Tim Keller's devotional, My Rock, My Refuge. And for a whole year, I lived in the Psalms. And each day, uh, as I read the Psalms, I I tried to write something, what I noted and how I felt. And I can say this, the Psalms changed me and continue to change me, and they really shifted my worldview. So today is an invitation for us as a church to enter into the Psalms, to live in the Psalms. It's an invitation to engage heart, soul, mind, and strength, your imagination, as well as your reason to change how you live your life. The invitation is to live in the same world as Jesus and the prophets and the apostles did. The Psalms were the poetry and songbook for that ancient people who for hundreds of years journeyed in relationship with God. They were the, the scriptures that Jesus and Paul probably knew by heart. And the Psalms, so I've read, were the, are the most quoted scriptures by Jesus. When we inhabit these poems and songs, we read and use the same words that Jesus did. So let's get into the Psalm. I wonder what images you saw as this Psalm was read this morning. I'm going to suggest that maybe there was one or two or three particular images that you would have seen. Perhaps the first thing you might have seen was that natural world and a creator busy at work. Or perhaps you saw that next picture that's presented, that pilgrim staring into a clouded mountain, wondering how he can see God. Or that last image of a king returning to his city, his temple. A time of festival and great celebration, or maybe you saw something completely different. Each of these images undoubtedly would have evoked all sorts of stories and ideas that come through the scriptures. These ideas and images will have been filtered through things that you learned as a child or at home, growing up, things you discovered as a teenager, uh, the realities of finding your way as a young adult, and all your positive and negative experiences of your life. For all of these. Uh, we come to all of Scripture, but perhaps especially the Psalms, with our baggage and our preconceived images and ideas. I could have chosen many Psalms this morning. As, a new, as I was thinking about this, as a new Christian, the, one of the first bits of Scripture that really spoke to me was Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, uh, out of the mud or mire. And when I, as a new Christian, that's, that really spoke to me of what God had done. As a a young Christian doctor, you can't really not know Psalm 139. For you uh, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And as a person trying to discover my own identity, I suppose I'm still pretty blown away by by Psalm 8. And we'll look at that a wee bit later. But I chose this psalm, Psalm 24. or Rather, I kind of felt led to this psalm. Uh, Chris talked last week about how Jesus came to offer us transformation. Jesus didn't come to offer us behavior modification. He didn't come to give us a psychotherapeutic remedy to make us feel better about ourselves. He came to change us, to fill us with himself, to change our very substance. He came to offer us resurrection, a whole new type of flesh years ago, I, I read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. Has anyone ever heard of The Divine Conspiracy or read it? Oh, that's your summer book. It'll take you all summer. The thrust of this book, as it works its way through the Sermon on the Mount, is that this transformation isn't just for when we die, but it's available to us right now. But for most of us, he says, we engage in what he describes as the gospel of sin management. And in his book, he says this we are in danger of missing the fullness of life offered to us. Can we seriously believe that God would establish a plan for us that essentially bypasses the awesome needs of present human life and leaves human character untouched? As I read this book uh, one summer, uh, a few years ago, I had to stop every two to three pages to take it all in. Uh, I realized that for most of my Christian life, has had been... Just about that, a process of managing my sin rather than an expectation that I could enjoy the fullness of what Jesus offered. Sometime during that summer, uh, I can't remember when, I I thought it was in the book, but I couldn't find it in in his book when I looked the other day. I read the psalm and it completely blew me away. I I saw the good news of Jesus in a whole new way. uh, And Today, I want us to enter into the psalm together. and I hope that you see and experience this psalm in your life as you ponder today. And as you pondered this week, and as you pondered in this season of your life. And I hope that we as a church can experience this as as we journey through this season in our church. So the first picture we see is of the Creator. The picture is scant, just a few lines. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. It doesn't tell us about the process of creation or of the creation of mankind, of Eden or the fall. The psalmist, I think, assumes that we know this. He just wants to place our thoughts in this awesome, powerful God who made everything, everything we see. Perhaps he wants to prompt us again to consider why God did such a thing, to create everything out of nothing, everything seen and unseen. If the question of why Jesus came to earth captures imaginations, then why God created us in the first place seems to be an even bigger question. The psalmist asks this question in Psalm 8: When I consider your wor- heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you came for them? What was God's intention and desire when he created? The answer, which maybe for our human be- minds isn't that really helpful, is that he made everything to reveal his glory. Now, glory is a strange word, and I'm not sure a definition really captures it. So I looked up a definition It says, the Hebrew word which is used for glory in the Old Testament has the simple meaning of heaviness or weight. It expresses the worth of a person in the material sense, and then to express the ideas of importance, greatness, honor, splendor, power, and so on. And so on. It's almost you run out of words just trying to consider what, what glory actually means. God's glory is the manifest expression of His love, power, purity, and beauty, and so on. Um, glory is almost indefinable, it just runs out of words. Uh, but we do know that God's intention and desire was that His glory would fill the earth and that we, mankind, would be crowned with glory and honor. Wow. <laughs> what does that look like? Well, Habakkuk in two uh, fourteen says this: "For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." It's kind of a strange. I mean, just the waters covering the sea. And again, Isaiah gives this picture, this kind of the realization of what what will be like when God's glory comes. In Isaiah 11, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lamb will eat straw like the ox. Infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They can neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we've got this picture of glorious, kind of indefinable thing, but the practical reality is this picture of this peace and and just wonderful place. Uh, Paul tries to, I think, to explain uh, what this idea of the waters covering the sea is all about. Uh, And in Ephesians 4, he says this, verse 6. There is one God... And father of all who is over all and through all and in all and that's what god's glory when it fills the earth is going to be like it was always god's intention that he would fill everything and though we we would be filled with him but then this uh, the psalmist shifts pictures it's very frustrating these poets um he doesn't spell out what happens he doesn't talk about what how mankind messed it up how that our desires ambitions and security in God became corrupted. He doesn't explain how Adam and Eve's desires led them astray when they saw the fruit and ate it, how Adam and Eve in that moment had ambitions to be like God, how they lost their trust in their loving Father and hid. I think he, the psalmist assumes all this when he shifts for the next picture. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and then vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him who seek your face, God of Jacob. So suddenly, we're transported to another scene. We now stand before the mountain of God. We stand and stare at this mountain shrouded in smoke and fire and deep darkness. God is present, but hidden from us. We're in a bit of a pickle. Who can see God? Who can have a relationship with God, enjoy intimacy with God, see his face? We are transported to Mount Sinai, the holy mountain of God. Moses is called up the mountain to see God and God warns him that no unclean thing can touch the mountain where he he is. So in Exodus 19, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the foot of it is to be put to death. We cannot come to God. We cannot come into his presence. Why? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we read on, we see this poignant moment of the mercy and tenderness of God. And I only saw this a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, when Moses goes back up, God speaks to him again. We sense the father's concern for his children. If they come up the mountain, they're in their unconsecrated state, the Lord will break out against them. Make sure you warn them, Moses. So in verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses says, Lord, the people can't come to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and said the part is holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring iron up to us. But the priest and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Our God is a consuming fire, but he loves us enough to make sure that we can't approach him unless we have pure hearts and clean hands. It's kind of amazing, I think. So what does it look like to have a pure heart and clean hands? The psalmist tells us. This is the one who is completely and utterly consecrated to God, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. I think sometimes we as modern Christians struggle with this idea of idols. I'm quite sure that many of us don't have idols in our houses in the traditional sense. We do, of course, recognize that we can make idols of other things. We can idolize power and the powerful. We can idolize sex and alcohol and drugs and other forms of addiction. We can idolize money and put our security and how much we accumulate. But I wonder if things that are potentially very good things become idols as well. I wonder if we can idolize our family and the achievements of our children, you know getting to the right school, having the right friends. I wonder can we idolize our work. Easy to do if you're in one of those kind of helping roles uh, as a doctor or nurse or dentist or teacher or whatever it might be. Even our good ambition for excellence can be idolized. I know because I think I've done that. I wonder, can we idolize our good intentions? We might not have much money, but we, uh, do we idolize our time and purpose? I wonder if the whole culture of looking after our bodies, our kind of me-time culture, or, you know, or going to the gym, all of those things can become an idol. There, I said, perhaps we can idolize our commitment to church our roles in church, our giving, our volunteering. You see, God doesn't want what we do, no matter how virtuous it might be, he wants us. He isn't interested in what we are doing so much as he's interested in what we're becoming. He wants us to love him with all we have. So Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In Psalm 51, uh, this came to mind when I was preparing this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God brings blessing to those with pure hearts and clean hands. He wants purity. Hearts filled with love for him. He wants clean hands, blameless lives with no shame or regret. And then the psalmist moves us to another picture. Poets really are annoying. They never follow through with a reasoned argument, do they? Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Let lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. I wonder when you thought of that uh, in your imagination, what picture to care in mind here? Perhaps you were transported to see King David bringing the ark to Zion, dancing with all his might before the Lord to the consternation of his wife. Or perhaps you saw Solomon before the temple, waiting for God to bring the presence and glory there. What I hope you saw also evoked a sense of excitement. Imagine you're in the crowd watching. Would you not sense the the expectation of this great moment, the sense that something life-changing is happening? And this is what I think the psalmist is trying to convey. The God-King is returning to be with his people. Open the gates wide. Lift up the ancient doors. God is coming to fill the temple with his glory. God will come to fill the earth with his glory as the water covers the sea. God is coming to be all in all. But he asked the question again, who is the king of glory? Why? Because he is a poet, and that's what poets do. He wants us to take a second look. He senses, maybe even sees in his imagination, another king coming. Maybe the picture you saw was of a king, humble, and gentle riding on a donkey. Maybe you saw the procession of people laying palms down and heard the cry Hosanna to the king of kings. Maybe all the prior kings, David with his heart after God but with blood in his hands and Solomon with all his wisdom and wealth that corrupted him are but parties of the true king. The psalmist says, look again, he foresees an almighty king who has a pure heart and clean hands, who can ascend the highest mountain, who can ascend into the very throne room of God. Here is the king, who is also our great high priest, who mediates for us before God the Father. But what must be open to let the king in? Here is the king who says the words recorded in Revelation. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus says, here I am. Look again and see, I am the king of glory. I bring blessing and vindication. Three pictures and the whole gospel is laid out before us if we choose to lift our heads. The creator God who desires to fill the whole earth with the glory uh, and to crown us with glory and honor. How sin has corrupted us, how we can't see the face of God, lest we be destroyed by that same glory, but the deep concern of God that we cannot come near him. How Jesus has come, the one with a pure heart and clean hands who can ascend the mountain. How he lays down his life for his friends so we can enjoy transformation, fullness of life, and come before the Father with confidence. Amazing, unbelievable good news. As I was preparing this today, I had a real sense that perhaps there are two responses to this. Maybe you're the one standing at the foot of the mountain with a broken heart and carrying shame and guilt in your hands and struggle to believe that such a thing is possible, that you might also have pure heart and clean hands. Or maybe you've reached that state of accommodation Uh, That you're not doing too bad, that you can live with your heart. Maybe you feel when you get your life sorted, your kids sorted out, your career on track. Whatever that small idol in your life might be, you will deal with your heart. Maybe you've dumbed down your expectation. That complete transformation is both possible and required. Whatever camp you're in, I know what it's like. I've been there. um, I've had the check. And continue to check the idols of my life and address my fears and expectations. But today I want uh, us all to live in this psalm. To sense the expectation that there is more, so much more. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Why lift up your heads? So the king of glory can come in. Or perhaps you've never heard this good news. And you're here today. uh, And you've heard this for the first time. And you want to know this king of glory. And if you hear his voice today, lift your heads and let the king of glory enter into your life and give you a new heart. I want to leave you with this. The writer of the Hebrews knew how to turn out a bit of poetry. Listen to this, Hebrews 12. Some of you may want to know this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded if even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned to death the sight was so terrifying that moses said i am trembling with fear but you we have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels and joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I'd like to finally just leave you with a poem. I was thinking about this. I, I thought of a poem that I wrote um, within the last year. I can't remember when exactly. And it really kind of reflects my own kind of soul searching and my own sense of kind of identifying the idols of my life and, and my own sense of my desire to, uh, to see more of God and my desire to let the King of glory enter in. And, w- and what I speak about today, I, I need to remind myself and do remind myself of, um, every day that th- I'm on a journey uh, like you are. So this, this poem is called The Climb. I have climbed these hills through riven riverbeds, carved out my path and scrambled up rock-faced, straining to reach my heights and saw only the climb. But you called out to climb another height and grasp my hands to cast off what I held tight to turn and see all the land around this spacious place formed for me. And now I see the hills climbed that led nowhere but another hill and I've reached this small mount, crossed over to lay this broken body down to give up what cannot be gained at last next his feet. And then To feel his hands, wounded but warm, lifting me, drawing me up to love, to life, to see his face and mirror his breath, to climb once more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an awesome creator. Thank you that you have... Made us, uh, you made us in your love uh, to reflect who you were. Thank you that uh, you want us to live into identity and purpose in you. That you want to crown us with glory and honor. You want to fill us uh, with your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, you're an awesome Savior. Thank you that you come as our King and our Priest and that you have ascended into the most holier places and that you mediate for us, that you, sp- you speak for us before your Father and then in you we're made perfect. And Spirit, we thank you that you live in us to transform us and bring us with pure hearts and clean hands to live with you, Father, Son, and Spirit, together forevermore. Amen.